Well, several years ago, we took a backpacking trip uh, into the mountains of Colorado. Uh, we revisited one of the places that is kind of a favorite to our family. And the boys and I had taken this trip several times, and we wanted to do something a little different this year. So I did some research to see if there was kind of a new adventure and uh, found that there was a, a peak that we could try to summit uh, while we were there. I was pretty excited. We kind of made a plan and we left early one morning to uh, summit this peak. But this particular mountain peak didn't have a, a well-groomed trail like a lot of them do in Colorado. It kind of was nestled in the midst of others and it wasn't really accessible. So we had to make our own path which means we bushwhacked through trees and shrubs and we climbed over boulders that were literally as big as a bus. I mean, it was really incredible and challenging, but the biggest challenge, the biggest obstacle was still ahead of us because there was this cliff band that surrounded the final approach to this mountain peak. Um, if you want to, you can kind of think of it like a, like a fence as tall as a skyscraper, okay? That's what that cliff band was. And, and to be honest with you, we didn't have the gear or the guts to make that kind of a climb. But hidden, you, you kind of had to see it, know where it was, hidden within this cliff band was a rock slide that created kind of a, a ramp to make this final approach. So, so we walked over and, and hiked to where this ramp was and took a look at it to see if it would give us access to the summit, and when we got there, we saw that, yeah, it would in fact give us access, but it was incredibly steep, <laughs> incredibly high, and incredibly dangerous. So we, we looked at it and talked a while, but collectively agreed, this is not a good idea. Uh, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you with one wrong step, someone could have died. And the boys weren't that old to begin with, and it just, it just wasn't worth it. So we decided to go ahead and, and turn around and head back. And when we did, we ran into a father and a son who were headed to where we had just come from. And so they were trying to get to the summit as well and couldn't figure out how to get past this cliff. So we took them over to where the ramp was. Well, they took a look at the ramp and studied it for a minute and said, I think we can do that. And they took off. And so we sat there and watched them as they made their way slowly and carefully until they literally almost disappeared. That's, that's how high this was. And after they made it, we kind of looked at it and then looked at each other and thought, I don't know, let's give it a try. So we set out, but we were really careful to follow their exact path. We were very mindful to go exactly the route that they took. Eventually, we made it to the top, but only because someone else went first. <laughs> what seemed impossible became accessible when someone made a way. When the writer of Hebrews speaks to us this morning, he points to Jesus as the pioneer of our faith. He is the one who overcame the obstacle of sin that there's no way we could have made on our own. What seemed impossible became accessible when Jesus made a way. His death on the cross is the only path to our salvation. And when we put our faith and trust in him, we follow that path. He leads us into everlasting life. That's what we'll look at together this morning. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, thank you for making a way. As we stare at this insurmountable barrier of sin, we realize and confess to you that it is not something that we can conquer on our own. That we are dead in our sin. But Lord, because of your grace and mercy, we can be made alive in Christ Jesus, the one who made a way through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Lord, may we see even more clearly this morning the, the links to which you went, not only to secure our salvation, but to become a, a high priest that understands every ounce of struggle that we face this side of heaven. Make that evident and clear to us this morning. We pray this in your name, amen. All right, if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, and we'll pick up where we left off last, and I'd love for you to read with me, beginning in verse 10. The writer of Hebrews continues and says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he was who sanctifies and the one, the, those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Last week, the writer of Hebrews uh, introduced a topic he will now unpack for us. He says at the end of verse 9 that Jesus tasted death for everyone. And this morning in verse 10, we understand why. Where he says, so that many, he may bring many sons to glory. He did this. He tasted death for everyone so that he could escort his children into heaven. That, that he can guide them into glory. But we also learn through our passage that this was not an easy path. It says that it required the author of our salvation to be perfected through suffering. Which does not mean that Jesus became more perfect over time. He was never not perfect. But what happened was that the sufferings that he endured revealed his perfection. Because at any point in time, Jesus could have chosen an easier path, but he never went his own way. We see that clearly in John chapter 5, verse 19, when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. His perfect obedience was a perfect fulfillment of God's perfect plan of salvation. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The author of our salvation made a way to glory through, our, through his suffering. It's interesting, that word author in the original language literally means leader or originator or pioneer. In fact, if you have the NIV translation, you'll see that's what it says. It says that Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. 
It's the idea that Jesus made a way for us to follow. He went first. And we have solidarity in his suffering. Because it says in our passage that he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and the ones who are sanctified, that's us, are from one family. We have one father. What he's telling us is that we belong to the same family as as brothers and sisters in Christ. And because we are family, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. I I don't know about you, but when, when when I say those words, it almost takes my breath away to think that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, looks at you and me and he says, you're my brother." You're my sister, and I'm in no way ashamed of you. <laughs> That's huge. And it goes back to what we talked about as we ended the service last Sunday. Just this fact that God delights in you, that he's proud of you, that he's in no way ashamed of you, which is hard to imagine knowing all that we know about ourselves, Right? How many of you have ever thought to yourself, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me? But see, that's the deal. He really knows you. And he really, really loves you. And there's no greater security than being fully known and still fully loved. There is therefore, Romans 8, 1, now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. This past week at Regen, we had a few people share their experience of confessing their inventory, which can be an intimidating process. They talked about the shame and and guilt that they felt over their sin and how there were things hidden in their heart, tucked away in a really dark place that they had never, ever shared with anyone before. And despite their fear, when they confessed those things that were hidden, they looked into the eyes of their listeners and they saw love and grace and acceptance. And they went on to say that that in and of itself introduced them into a freedom that they had never known before. Because now, Now they can walk in the light without carrying around that burden of hidden sin. And when we look into the eyes of Jesus, we need to see the very same thing. No condemnation. No guilt. No shame. Because all you're going to find is love and grace and forgiveness. The writer of Hebrews presses this point home to us when he quotes from Psalm 22, which in my opinion is the most messianic psalm in the Bible. It's the the psalm that most vividly points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's a psalm that begins with familiar words. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a psalm of a sufferer. And we know that those are the words, those exact words that Jesus spoke when he was dying on the cross. And the reason is, is that he was quoting this psalm. The psalm goes on and it talks about this suffering servant 
who will become a, a reproach of men, despised by people. How he will be surrounded by those who mock him. Does this sound familiar? It goes on and says that they would pierce his hands and his feet. And that they would divide their garments among them. Jesus quoted this psalm because it was a psalm about him. But the psalm ends in a beautifully wonderful way, in a declaration of trust. It goes on in verse 24 and it says this, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. He heard. That's why in our passage, it goes on and quotes from that very same song. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. What this is saying is that Jesus, our suffering Messiah, leads our songs of praise. Because he understands that God is faithful. He understands that God hears. He understands that God rescues. He testifies to the faithfulness of God who made a way for our salvation. That's why it says in verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And when we follow Jesus in faith, it tells us that we are introduced into the family of God. That He says, I and the children whom God has given me. That's a reflection of what we see in John chapter 1, verse 12, where he writes, But as many as received him, talking about trusting in Jesus, it says, To them he gives the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. Jesus made a way. He suffered died in order that we might have eternal life. He rose from the grave. He, he reigns in glory. And he conquered the power of death. We see that in our next section. Look at verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in his flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Speaking of flesh and blood. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. We have solidarity in his suffering. We have solidarity in his sacrifice. This passage tells us that Jesus shared in our flesh and blood that he became like one of us. And not at the expense of his deity, but in addition to it. He just willfully chose to set aside his divine rights in order to experience the reality of our humanity. He ate, he drank, he slept. He laughed. He cried. He, he was filled with joy. And as we know, there were times when he was filled with, with righteous anger. 
But the author wants us to understand that he didn't just come to experience all those things. He took on our humanity because he had to die. You see, in his divinity, Jesus lives eternally. He cannot die. But in our humanity, unless Jesus dies, we cannot live. Do you see it? Sin and death are a barrier that we cannot overcome on our own. Jesus took on our humanity to bear the punishment of sin's penalty. He died. And not because of his sin, but because of our sin. Taking the punishment that we deserved upon himself. You see, he, he took on our fate of, of, of sin and death so that we could take on the fate that he deserves of, of resurrection and glory. He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And our passage says that that sacrifice of Jesus took the devil's power away. That's really important. We see how that originated when you look at Ephesians chapter one, or chapter 2, verse 1. It says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit. It's describing here the devil who is now working in the sons of disobedience. So the devil holds the power of death through the enslaving power of sin. Do you see that? The wages of sin is death. So the devil holds the power of death through the enslaving power of sin. But once the penalty of death is paid, then the power of sin is removed. Through his sacrifice, we are set free from the fear of death, from the power of sin's control. Because what's true for Jesus through faith in him now becomes true for us. We are united with him in faith. We see that very clearly in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, where it says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this. That our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. There it is. Having been freed from sin, we are set free from the fear of death because death is no longer a punishment. In essence, death becomes a passage to the promise of eternal life. A privilege, the author points out, that does not belong to angels. We learn that in chapter 1 where it says that angels will not inherit salvation. They were not created for that purpose. That is reserved for humanity. And Jesus didn't come to die for fallen angels. He came to die for fallen humanity. Their fate is sealed. But ours is determined by the object of our faith. Now let's look at verse 17. 
He says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are likewise tempted. See, Jesus experienced all the realities of our humanity. He was not pretending to be human. Okay, we need to understand that. He experienced all the realities of being human. He was learning and growing, just like you and I. Uh, uh, Hebrews 5.8, which we'll see later on, says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. See, Jesus took on the, the full spectrum of the human experience. The, the physical body, the developing mind, the, the human emotions. And he did this in order to become a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, when the author writes those words, I can assure you that they would have immediately resonated with their Hebrew audience because they would have automatically thought through that as the high priest has a very unique role specific to a very unique day called the Day of Atonement. One day, one man, enters into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, and makes an atonement for the sins of the people. In verse 17, is telling us, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He made an atonement in the presence of God, a, a propitiation for the sins of the people. And that word propitiation is a, is a big word, but it's packed with very important meaning. It's a word that describes an offering that turns away God's wrath against sin. His righteous judgment against the guilt of sin, which is something only Jesus could do. Because he alone could meet the righteous demands of God's holiness. See, God's holiness requires a just punishment against sin. In other words, he can't be just and just let guilty sinners go free. If you were in a courtroom and you heard the, the testimony of a heinous crime, how would you feel about a judge who looked at that and said, eh, it's okay, just carry on, it doesn't really matter. He's not just. And nor would God be if that's the way he looked at the guilt of our sin. So Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. As we've been singing and, and, and talking about the, the, the sin, the guilt of our sin, it's transferred onto Christ so that the, the righteousness that he alone deserves is then transferred to you and I. He was rejected so that we could be redeemed. As Brian said, it is the great exchange. And the writer of Hebrews points to the temptation that Jesus experienced in this path of suffering that he endured on our behalf. Verse 18 says, for he himself was tempted 
in that which he has suffered. Now, you may remember the prayer that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. You may remember that the Bible describes the agony that he was in, the the suffering that he was enduring in that moment. So much so that it says that his sweat became like drops of blood. And in that prayer of Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, he says these words. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. In other words, if there's any other way, then let it be. Because Jesus knew the wrath and rejection that was before him. And Satan was tempting him to take a shortcut, to find another way. Just like he did in the desert when he tempted Jesus to to turn those rocks into bread. Or to gain dominion over the world by worshiping the ruler of this world who was tempting him at the time. We see the very same thing happening in the Garden of Eden. And unfortunately, it worked. Because we know in that setting that Satan convinced Adam and Eve to take a shortcut. He convinced them to to take for themselves what God had said must only come from him. You see, it wasn't as if there was an absence of the knowledge of good and evil. They were gaining that understanding from their loving Father, Creator, God. But they chose to take a shortcut to something better, something beyond what God had promised. All temptation, both for Jesus and for us, is an invitation to live outside the boundaries of God's will. See, Satan employed it with Jesus, he employed it with Adam and Eve, and he employs it with you and I. All throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus was being tempted. He was suffering through the reality of going another way. But Jesus was faithful where humanity failed. You remember how he finished that prayer in the garden, right? If there's another way, let it be, but not my will but your will be done. All temptation, both for Jesus and for us, is an invitation to take a shortcut, to find satisfaction beyond the boundaries of God's design, to trust ourselves and our own opinions more than we put our trust in Him. And Jesus experienced the force of this temptation to the to degrees that you and I will ever know. C.S. Lewis explains this by comparing temptation to walking against the force of, of of a gale force wind. So think about a hurricane wind, okay? And think about walking into that wind that is hundreds of miles an hour against you. He says that that Jesus knows far more about that temptation. Because where you and I, over time, having walked against that gale force wind, will eventually lay down and succumb to it. But Jesus never did, and he never stopped walking. Which means there is no temptation that you will ever face that he has not already endured. He can come to our aid because he's been there too, but to 
exponential degrees of suffering. And just like Jesus, he's telling us that, that we too can overcome temptation by his same method. You know what it was? Trust in God. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is therefore now no, there is no temptation that overtakes us but what is common to man. And God is faithful and just not to allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. But in everything, he will provide a way of escape so that we can stand up under it. Jesus knows that God is faithful to the end, that he will provide a way of escape just like he did at the cross. And so I think one of the most obvious ways to apply the truth of this passage is to let Jesus come to your aid. There may be some who have never come to that place. You've never come to a place where you've fully surrendered before him, that you have acknowledged your need and put your trust in him. And I would urge you with all that is within me to consider that invitation this morning. He endured great suffering in order to set you free. He was rejected so that you could be redeemed. Taking on the fullness of God's wrath, a righteous judgment against sin so that you could experience the fullness of God's love as a child that belongs to him. So please, before you leave this morning, Listen to the invitation and put your trust in him because he made a way for you. And for those of you who have put your faith and trust in Christ, I want to remind you of Satan's ongoing strategy. Okay, We need, we need to understand that he's constantly trying to derail us by tempting us to trust in something other than God. So, so even beyond that point where we place our faith and trust in God, we can still be distracted to take that allegiance to him and put it somewhere else. And the, and the devil is constantly presenting those opportunities before you. He wants you to take a shortcut to experience God's blessing. An easier path than the suffering that faithful obedience requires. And so let me give you three things that I would encourage you to consider as we close this morning. If you would, write these down. Number one, never walk alone. Never walk alone. Number two, go where others have gone. Go where others have gone. And number three, fix your eyes on Jesus. So, Never walk alone. Satan is, is, is devious and, and, he's, and he's smart because he, he operates like a lion who, who wants to, to separate his prey from the protection of the pack, from the protection of community. And what the lion does in the wilderness, so does Satan do towards us. He wants to eliminate other voices so that you will listen to his lies. And he does that best when you choose to walk alone. 
convincing you that no one struggles like you do. You are terminally unique. That no one could possibly understand, which is a lie, literally, from the pit of hell. In Regen, again, one of the most common statements I hear as people walk through that is they say out loud, I thought I was the only one. And they, they say that in response to a testimony of what someone's sharing the, the transforming work that God's done in their life, and they hear their own story. And they said, I thought I was the only one. So invite others into your life and tell your story. Let God speak to you through the lives of other people. Never walk alone. The second thing is to go where others have gone. Look to the examples of those who have gone before you. You see, Satan wants to tempt us. He's constantly trying to do this. In every generation, no exception, he wants you to try something new, something different, something better. He wants you to break the chain of faith passed down from one generation to the next. We see that clearly in the book of Judges where it says that every man did what was right in his own eyes. But did you know in the beginning of that uh, important book, it says that there arose a generation who did not know the Lord. And it goes on and explains why. It says they forsook the God of their fathers and worshiped false idols instead. They tried something new. Leaving behind the legacy of faith that preceded them. So let's not repeat that mistake. We have a tremendous privilege in this church to have multiple generations, young and old. Look around you. Just realize that the gift that God has given us within this body of believers, that, that there's so much that we can learn from each other. The young from the old and the old from the young. And we have a shared responsibility to protect our legacy of faith. It's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's our legacy of faith. Never walk alone. Go where others have gone. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Remember, he... He's the pioneer of our faith. He took what was impossible and made it accessible through the cross. He became sin so that we could become righteousness. He made a way. And we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. See, that's the ultimate, to, to approach the throne of grace with confidence. See, that's where you receive mercy and find grace in your time of need. So I would just encourage you, go there often. That's a privilege that you have through faith in Jesus Christ. Linger in his presence and don't get in a hurry to leave because he wants to be with you. He longs to see you, wants to hear your voice. And so fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He went before us 
so that we could go to places that we could never get to on our own. The very throne of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that, it sounds silly, but that that you didn't just pass down a memo from heaven. But you actually entered into our world, taking on our flesh and blood, experiencing the fullness of the depth of suffering beyond what we will ever know. And you did this in order to do something that we could never do for ourselves. You, perfectly obedient, became a perfect sacrifice to fulfill God's perfect plan of salvation. You made a way. And so, Lord, help us to put our trust in you. Help us to follow you in faith. To be careful to walk exactly where you've walked. And to not be distracted by what promises to be a better way. Something new. A shortcut. Instead, may we have a long obedience in the same direction. Whatever suffering that requires to remain faithful to you as our great God and King. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. It's a powerful line. My name (laughs) written in his wounds. His suffering so that we could be set free. Please, don't miss that. And I would encourage you if that is something that, that you haven't taken and accepted, that that was actually for you. Man, would you please consider that it is and be assured that it was? And for those of us who do know that truth, let me just urge us again to stand together in the unity of spirit for the faith of the gospel. We had the privilege of having Mark and Stacy Daniels over to our house this week and share dinner together. Now, they're a generation or two behind us, but it was fascinating to me as we listened to their story how much we actually had in common. In fact, Mark and I (laughs) have experienced similar suffering. And in knowing that, there was an immediate bond that he has been through what I've experienced and I've been through what he's experienced And we can help each other and understand each other. And I would just encourage you to have the same conversations and experience the same reality because it's all over this place. So share life together as we share in the sufferings of what it means to faithfully obey Christ in a world that is not our home. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this family. Thank you for the privilege of being together today. Thank you for the price that you paid, the the way that you made so that we could experience the free gift of eternal life. And not just something future, but even now in this moment, you have set us free. Free from the slavery of sin's control to live a life that is transformed day by day to become increasingly like our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And so, Lord, help us to faithfully follow you, whatever suffering that takes. May we never choose another way. We pray this in your name. Amen.